You are joining Jordan Lefkowitz, Andrew Bosworth, and Drew Olenzik on Jew or Jew Not, There Is No Goy podcast, where we address the current events happening in the Jewish world. Today is the 9th of Sivan, 850 CE. Thank you for joining us. Today, we will be discussing the recent pushback of Karaites against the growing authority of rabbinic Judaism. The Karaites are a sect of Judaism that has broken away from traditional Judaism in the 8th century in Baghdad. The sect of Judaism strictly follows the written Torah, ignoring the rabbi's interpretations. Around this table, we are similarly minded, as we believe that the rabbis should be figures of authority. However, our goal is to bring you the full story, and to do so, we will have a couple of speakers. We will have three guest speakers for the show today, and two of us will interview each guest at a time. Before we dive into the Karat Rebellion, I think it's important to understand who the Karaites are. We must first understand how the rabbis came to be. I 100% agree, Jordan. This is why I am pleased to introduce our first guest speaker for today's podcast, Rabbi David Mi Briarcliffe, an expert on the rise of rabbinic Judaism. Rabbi David is of a direct descendant of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and he really knows his stuff. Rabbi David, why don't you take us uh, and talk to us about the uh, origins of rabbinical Judaism? Thank you so much, Andrew. For a long time, rabbinic Judaism was not mainstream or standardized. The term rabbi initially meant someone respected due to a high position or a teacher, but did not necessarily mean someone who was ordained to be a rabbi. Additionally, the ordained rabbis were scattered unevenly throughout the Jewish communities and were wealthy and classist. During the time of the Mishnah in particular, rabbis, known as Tanaim, were highly affluent and mainly focused on their, focused their attention on the problems of the rich and didn't really care about the working class. They owned large estates outside of the cities and did not intimately interact with the lower class. As a result, rabbinic Judaism was not centralized until Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi revolutionized rabbinic Judaism. Uh, Rabbi David, for those of our listeners who did not tune in to the podcast two weeks ago, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was he? Can you tell us a little bit about him and what he did? Of course. I'd be happy to talk to you about my ancestor. Yehuda Hanasi helped advance the cause of rabbinic Judaism by sending rabbis to communities in Palestine and the diaspora that had no rabbinic authority to supervise religious practices and collect taxes. He also made the process of becoming a rabbi easier for yids that were impoverished or just not extremely wealthy by creating salaried positions for them. He also improved the ties between the rabbis and the broader Jewish people by stressing the inclusion of the poor in rabbinic law. Wow, I find that fascinating, Rabbi Dovid. I think that when many of our listeners consider rabbinic origins, they think about early rabbis being the go-to source for expertise from the get-go, when in reality, we see that they're actually only transformed more to that after Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. How much power did the rabbis have in terms of leading the Jewish people? Great question. Under the Roman Empire, the power of the rabbis was significantly limited. The only case in which they could have any judicial control was with regard to civil cases, where both parties agreed to be judged by a Jewish court. Nothing was stopping any Jews from diverting from the rabbinical authority at that time. Many Jewish communities completely disregarded some of the rules of the Mishnah because there was no true ruling power over them. Uh, let's take a step back here momentarily. 
Are you able to tell us how rabbinical Judaism started? I think this would really be helpful to understand as we consider the claim that the Karaites are a separate religion. We should also consider how each of these groups began to understand whether or not the Karaites have a legitimate claim. To be honest with you, Andrew, there is no universally accepted answer to your question. There are basically three schools of thought that I'll share with you and your listeners today. There's a theory, the first one, that Hillel and Shammai were the pioneers of rabbinic Judaism. Hillel is connected to the first set of rules, and both, of, both Hillel and Shammai founded schools designated to interpret the Torah. They had many legal disagreements, and much of their disagreements covers how rabbinical literature recalls first century BCE. But there's no mention to them after the destruction of the Second Temple, at least by the names Hillel and Shammai. The next theory is that the Pharisees began rabbinic Judaism. They shared a respect with the rabbis of oral tradition, of legal practices, and uh, religious law. They had shared beliefs on things like predetermination, but the rabbis are never really connected to any Second Temple period sect and are even against sectarianism. The last theory is that Yohanan ben Zakkai launched rabbinic Judaism. The theory is he helped our people transition to a time without the temple, settling aside Yavne as the new center of Judaism. However, there's many doubts that any of his accomplishments actually happened, or maybe they're all myths. The Sanhedrin, the court he is said to have founded, may not have existed. There's no evidence that Yohanan ben Zakkai even controlled such a group. There's little evidence of rabbinic authority and... They were not really recognized by the Romans until much later. Thank you so much, Rev. David. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsor, Plain White Sitsis. At Plain White Sits, we sell exactly what's in our name. Plain White Tzitzit. Because as a people, we've forgotten where the Tchela dye comes from. Call 1-800-Tzitzis to order now. Welcome back. We are joined by one of the experts on modern rabbinic Judaism, Mati Jahu Bosdorf, here to talk to us about rabbinic Judaism and how it took a central role in the majority of Jewish life. Tell us a bit about how the rabbis and Jews took power under Islam. It's, it's really great to be here. It wasn't until the Umayyad Caliphate where Jews were granted self-autonomy on a local level. The leaders of these communities were often rabbis and thus the power grew. The Jews were protected as a Dimi class and a Muslim protected class. As a class, they were protected as long as they paid the jizya, a tax that allowed them to exist. And they followed the Pact of Umar, a set of laws that maintained the Jews as subservient in some respect to Muslims, like forcing their temples to be shorter. Other than that, the Jews had self-autonomy. Once again, the rabbis had control over civil court cases with consent from both parties, of course. How much authority did the rabbis have at this time? Well, while the rabbis gained power under the Umayyad Caliphate, the rabbis became more widely accepted figures of authority under the Abbasid Caliphate. Under the Umayyad, um, Jewish communities really had no central ruling power. Each kahal acted on its own. So there was no centralized rabbinic system. Under the Abbasid Caliphate, things really changed. The uh, rabbinic practice would flourish during this time as yeshivot were given legislative power and Jewish courts were established to enforce their rulings. The yeshivas promised a clear-cut way to establish laws and ask questions to the rabbinic authority. Although, 
as we know, the different yeshivas added some conflict between them. The heads of the yeshivas were known as the geonim, the leaders of rabbinic Judaism. Most importantly, the Jews were given a direct line to the caliph through the exilarch, the, uh, the Jewish community leader um, during the Abbasid Caliphate, which furthered their standing within the empire. Wow. Thank you so much, Matityahu, for speaking with us today. Now that we understand the basis for the rabbinical power during at this time, we can look at the Karaites and why they may, may be unhappy with rabbinical authorities. I'd like to welcome onto our show a Karaite and Karaite expert, Yehuda Lefkovich. Yehuda, welcome to the show. Great to be here, guys. The history of the Karaites is rich and complicated, and I will do my best to portray it to your audience. Well, thanks for joining us, Yehuda. Based on what I have heard, apparently Karaites come from all the way back in the times of Jeroboam? Uh, how come only now it's becoming such a big deal? I may receive some bad press in the Karaite movement for this, but since I am a historian, I'm going to tell you that the, st the story involving Jeroboam is probably a fable or a myth. The story likely goes like this. After the death of a childless exilarch, his wealth and position would pass to one of his nephews. Traditionally, it would be the eldest one. However, the Jewish communal leaders did not trust his eldest nephew's character and religiousness. Thus, they passed it to the younger nephew. The older nephew, whose name is Anan, quickly founded a breakaway group and was sentenced to death. At this time, anyone who rebelled against religion would, would receive this same punishment. In order to keep the caliph from killing him, Anan convinced the caliph that he was not a rebel against Judaism, but rather a leader of a separate religion. Thus, he lived in the Karaites were officially a separate religion. So the Karaites just began to spare Anan? Well, then I guess it's easy, right? It's an Ill illegitimate other religion formed to save its head, right? Well, actually, it's far more nuanced than that. You see that the original group was not even known as Karaites. They were known as Ananites. Benjamin al-Nawandi and Daniel al-Kwamsai were the two major leaders who transformed Ananism into Karaitism. Before them, Karaites were a conglomeration of various anti-rabbinic groups who had, which had little unity. Interesting. What were some of the major accomplishments of Al-Nahawandi and Al-Quimsi? Al-Nahawandi made reading the Torah independently a core belief of the Karaites. He was not as hostile against traditional Jews, believed that each law based on the Bible, and, and even took some stuff from the rabbis. In cases where the Torah is not clear, he advises people to follow the rabbis. Al-Kwamsai pioneered the idea that Jews should move to Eretz Israel, specifically Yerushalayim, and should mourn Zion. He also believed that in a set of normative beliefs, the Articles of Faith, funnily enough, a lot of the unification of the Karaite movement was caused by a rabbinite named Saadia Gaon, who strongly challenged the Karaite leaders, attempting to wipe them out. However, to survive, the group needed to put aside their differences, paving the way for a more unified and stronger Karaite group. Could you talk a bit about the differences between Karaite practice and rabbinical practice? Rather than following rabbinic interpretation of the Torah, we only follow the words of the Torah as they're exactly written. One example of this being that they do not separate milk and meat, as this is an interpretation by the rabbis on the words, do not cook a calf and its mother's milk. Rabbinic kashrut laws aim to build a fence around the Torah, 
but the Karaites care more deeply about the true specifics that are written. Another example would be that the Karaites observe Shabbat in complete and utter darkness, only leaving their homes to attend services, as this is how it is explained in the Torah, that Shabbat should be dark. We also have different beliefs than the rabbis regarding the afterlife, believing in a hell or an eternal punishment, and that the righteous would watch those from the Mountain of Olives. It is nearly impossible to find two Karaites with the same opinions on most religious issues, making them a divided sect on religion. Thank you so much, Yehuda. This has been genuinely insightful for our listeners and for us as well. So, Drew and Jordan, let me ask you now. We've learned a lot today on this episode, and I feel like it's time to make some conclusions. Would someone choose to align themselves with the Karaites versus the rabbis? And who should our listeners be aligning themselves with? That is a great question, Andrew. The religious and devout Jews willing to change their lifestyles, who believe that God did not intend for us to interpret the Torah and adapt to modern times, would be prime examples of people who should join the Karite movement. Those who feel that as time evolves, we must do the same, should follow the rabbis. The rabbis are adding to their beliefs as problems arise when they interpret the Torah. They always answer new questions that arise to the yeshiva system. The rabbis have been great leaders for the Jewish people and have allowed for us to successfully live our lives under the rule of both rabbinic law and the Islamic empire. We would not want a more sporadic leadership to ruin this for us in the Karaites. Additionally, the inconsistency in Karaite traditions would divide our people and make us less unified. We recommend that people remain under the guidance of the rabbis as they are less limiting on the lives we can live and provide us with more humane and relatable traditions. God intended for us to interpret the Torah, not just read it word for word. The basis of this dissent was a brotherly conflict The only reason it is now unified is because each movement could not survive on their own. The ideology is not a result of a true belief. It is a source of ideological rebellion. As a result, we advise to side with the rabbis. Thanks for listening. Tune in in a few centuries to hear about the Charter of the Jews of Spain and how Ashkenazi Judaism formed.